what's happening in the world coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. 18-year-old Bronny James, son of NBA star LeBron James, suffered cardiac arrest during a basketball workout at USC. In a sudden move, China replaces its foreign minister after the high-profile diplomat vanished from public view for weeks. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the allegations against Biden are reaching a critical level and could usher in an impeachment inquiry. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy defends former President Trump. Find out what he said ahead of next month's debate. A newly surfaced Pentagon memo now making headlines. It says transgender soldiers can defer deployment if they're using cross-sex hormones. The memo also details surgeries performed on troops. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Our top news, Bronny James, son of NBA star LeBron James, collapsed while practicing basketball at the University of Southern California yesterday. He reportedly suffered a cardiac arrest. According to the James family, Bronny is out of the intensive care unit and in stable condition now. The family asked for respect and privacy in a statement, saying they would keep the media updated. The 18-year-old Bronny was a four-star recruit after graduating from Sierra Canyon High School. He joined the USC basketball team as a freshman and played in the McDonald's All-American game earlier this year. Republican presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was involved in a car accident this morning in Tennessee. DeSantis' campaign initially said no one was injured. However, Chattanooga police later told ABC News that one female staffer received minor injuries. She continued on to the next campaign stop to receive treatment there. DeSantis has fundraisers scheduled today in Chattanooga, Knoxville, and the Nashville area. Following weeks of absence and spiraling speculation, China's foreign minister Qin Gong was suddenly removed from his post. Qin has been a close aide to Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He was only appointed foreign minister last December after serving as China's ambassador to the U.S. He has been missing from the political scene since June 25th when he hosted officials from Sri Lanka, Vietnam, and Russia in Beijing. Before that, he also met with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Chin's predecessor, Wang Yi, will take his old post back. Some see Chin's removal as a sign of soured relations with China's top leadership. China's foreign ministry didn't comment on the reason behind the switch. The state media is mum, and comments are censored on Chinese social media. Back in the U.S., House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says corruption allegations against President Biden are rising to the level of an impeachment inquiry. When President Biden was running for office, he told the American public that he's never talked about business. He said his family has never received a dollar from China, which we now prove is not true. McCarthy spoke with Fox News' Hannity. He talked about whistleblower allegations involving substantial payments made to the Biden family members by foreign entities. And he accused the FBI of withholding crucial information from the Internal Revenue Service on Biden matters. The House Speaker also referenced two IRS whistleblowers who alleged government prosecutors slow-walked an investigation into Hunter Biden's tax crimes. He also noted that House GOP investigations found records of millions in foreign funds having traveled through shell companies to Biden family members and associates. 
The White House responded by accusing House Republicans of prioritizing irrelevant issues instead of focusing on important matters like inflation and job creation. Presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy defended former President Trump and his actions as president. He was asked on Fox News if he would criticize Trump. But a bad judgment is not the same thing as a crime. And when we conflate the two, that sets a dangerous precedent for this country. I don't want to see us become some banana republic where the party in power uses police force to arrest its political opponents. The interview comes a month before the first GOP presidential debate. Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream criticized Ramaswamy for not going after any of the other candidates. Ramaswamy responded that he is not running against anyone, not even President Biden. He said he's running for the vision of what it means to be American. He says he won't be a super PAC puppet, but an independent voice. He shared his vision of how to stop the U war in Ukraine and said NATO was created to deter the USSR, that it has expanded more after the USSR fell than it ever did during the USSR's existence. The GOP-led House Judiciary Committee is considering a vote this week to hold Meta Platform CEO Mark Zuckerberg in contempt. Members say he isn't cooperating with investigation requests. Republicans have accused Meta of being uncooperative. They are referring to the panel's investigation into possible censorship and collusion between big tech and the federal government. Some reports indicate a vote on contempt could happen by Thursday. Meta owns Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, and now Threads. The House Judiciary Committee is asking for communications about content moderation decisions during the COVID pandemic. They want to know whether government officials requested Meta to delete posts or suspend users. Meta told news outlets recently that some 50,000 pages of documents were handed over to the Judiciary Committee. The company says it also made about a dozen current and former Meta employees available for discussion with House Republicans, adding that it will work with the committee moving forward. Transgender soldiers can delay deployment while using cross-sex hormones. That's according to a newly surfaced Pentagon memo. It points out potential side effects of such procedures. Here's the story. Transgender soldiers will be allowed to delay deployment for up to 300 days and waive physical fitness standards. This applies to their transition period while they're using cross-sex hormones. That's according to a February memo by the Womack Army Medical Center first reported by the dossier last week. The document estimates it can take 9 to 18 months to complete a gender transition and that hormone therapy comes with potential health risks and undesired side effects. The military's goal for transgender soldiers is to provide a safe and effective pathway to achieve lasting personal comfort with their gender selves while serving. The memo also states that transgender soldiers could undergo various surgeries after taking hormones for 12 months. It indicated that hysterectomies, breast, ovaries, or testes removal, and more could be performed on taxpayers' expense. Alan Hopewell is a neuropsychologist who served in the military for 28 years. He commented on the memo, saying many who suffer from gender dysphoria are mentally unstable. According to him, combining mental instability with hormones under combat stress could be dangerous to the transgender soldier and other troops. In 2021, the U.S. Army changed its rules to allow those with gender dysphoria to serve. An explanation of the rule change reads that gender identity would no longer be a basis for involuntary separation or military discharge, denied reenlistment, or continuation of service, or subjected to adverse action or mistreatment.
The Justice Department is suing Texas after Governor Greg Abbott refused to remove a controversial floating barrier in the Rio Grande. Why? And what will determine the outcome of this case? To find out, I spoke with Andrew Arthur, resident fellow in law and policy for the Center for Immigration Studies. Andrew Arthur, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. Andrew, why does the Justice Department want Texas to remove this marine barrier in the first place? Well, the legal reason that they're offering is because it's a violation of uh, navigable rivers laws uh, that require uh, permitting before anyone puts an obstruction in the river. And maybe you can say more about that. Why has Greg Abbott and Texas refused to remove this marine barrier despite the Justice Department's asking them to do so? So the, uh, the southwest border is 1,954 miles and about 1,000 miles of that is in Texas. Uh, this massive uh, influx of migrants that we've seen into the United States ever since Joe Biden took office has most adversely affected the state of Texas. Uh, we've seen a lot of crossings in the Rio Grande Valley, Del Rio, El Paso, uh, and that's imposed real costs on the state of Texas. And in response, Governor Abbott has sent state troopers down there, uh, has sent National Guard, and has uh, erected barriers at the southwest border to keep those folks out of the United States, but more importantly, out of Texas. Uh, and that is something that the Biden administration has uh, opposed us and has been opposing. Now, the DOJ is suing Texas and Greg Abbott to remove this barrier. What does this case hinge upon? Uh, the case really hinges upon a couple of different things. One, the black letter law of uh, the navigable river statute uh, that uh, the Biden administration is ruling on. But this is probably going to be a much bigger legal and political issue because a lot of people in Texas are pushing for Governor Abbott to pro uh, proclaim an invasion of Texas under the Constitution. Governor Abbott's been doing the best that he can to control the situation down there. It's not even entirely clear what the invasion statute would do. But the courts will be weighing both the legal issues and, to a certain degree, the political and the practical issues at the southwest border in this lawsuit. Now, this marine border that we're talking about, this marine barrier that we're talking about, is part of uh, Texas border security operation, Operation Lone Star. Has this operation been effective? The operation's actually been uh, very effective. In fact, I was embedded with troopers from uh, Lone Star uh, back in 2021 uh, and rode the highways. Uh, we actually ran down uh, a number of human smugglers, chased after a lot of drug smugglers, and in fact, uh, did a splashdown. Uh, I was in a helicopter and a, a truck full of drugs uh, splashed down into the one, of, one of the local rivers. And the reason why uh, it's been effective is because it's important. And the reason that it's important is because we only have a limited number of Border Patrol agents. They get pulled off the line in order to process, transport, feed, and all too often release migrants, which means they're not at the southwest border. If you went back there, if you went to the border four years ago, you would see uh, Border Patrol agents everywhere. You go there today, they're just not there. But the people who you do see are those state troopers and their very familiar black and white vehicles. They are providing the border security there. Well, Andrew Arthur, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Coming up, the Internal Revenue Service has some news that should make taxpayers breathe a sigh of relief. And a Hollywood prop rental business is on the brink of closing as actors and writers continue to strike. More in just a moment here on 
NTD News Today. Welcome back. The Internal Revenue Service has some news that should make taxpayers breathe a sigh of relief. The agency announced yesterday it will reverse a decades-long policy of sending agents to homes and businesses unannounced. This was done to collect unpaid taxes and documents. Tens of thousands of surprise visits were conducted annually. The main reason for the change is to protect IRS employees who increasingly face hostile taxpayers. Scam artists have also been posing as IRS agents. Now taxpayers will receive a letter from the IRS asking them to schedule a face-to-face -face meeting. A prop rental shop in LA is unnaturally quiet. There's no one looking for set design items as the writers and actors strike continues. NCD's Andrew Thomas has more on how the strike is disrupting business. Mark Meyer thinks his prop rental business may have a month or two left. He supplies items for movie, TV, and commercial productions. Soon he'll have to make the difficult decision to start auctioning off thousands of items. Our income has been slashed drastically. It was like $140,000 a month. And now with all the bills and everything, I'm kind of hardly going to make 10000 I think. His business has supplied items for movies like Top Gun Maverick and TV shows like Good Trouble. Hollywood writers have been on strike since May and actors since mid-July. So we left the tags on because the decorator wanted them for that set. And hopefully when the strike is over, they'll come back and redo that set and that same script and pick these up again. But the company is on the brink of going out of business. Meyer has already closed temporarily. He's laid off his entire staff, except for one employee. I've got all of the employees after COVID came back, except for two. And um, they're like my family. You know, I, I hated to lay them off because they were like my family. They're, they're family members to me, you know. The inventory of desks, chairs, lamps, and other office-type decor is gathering dust. Marvin Figueroa is Meyer's last remaining employee. He fears the library will close permanently after surviving the global pandemic. I'm thinking this is probably worse than COVID, I would think, right? Because there was like an ending and there was something going on with COVID. This don't seem like it's going to end. They're not going to negotiate it. And I don't know. Hopefully we'll stay in business. As the strike continues, scores of businesses that support the movie and TV industries are fighting to stay afloat. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. FedEx pilots have rejected a tentative labor deal that included a 30% pay increase. The package included an equal boost in their pension benefits. The major objections from the pilots are not yet clear. 57% of the FedEx pilots who belong to the Airline Pilots Association voted against the proposed contract. The contract was reached in May and endorsed by union leadership. Even with the no vote, the 5,200 FedEx pilots won't be able to go on strike anytime soon. That's because there are a lot of hurdles that have to be cleared first. The union says it will go back to the bargaining table in search of a deal membership will accept. The reduction comes amid a well-documented pilot shortage nationwide for both passenger airlines and cargo carriers. 
Joining me live now is NTD Business's Don Ma. So Don, UPS and the Teamsters Union are meeting today to try to avert a strike. Can you tell us more? Yeah, sure, Chris. Um, so this meeting would be the first since UPS labor contract negotiators deadlocked on July 5th. Uh, the union will be pushing for better wages this time, seems like. And what would the impact be if there is a strike? So according to some estimates, um, the potential economic impact of, let's say, for example, a 10-day UPS strike, uh, that would cost $7 billion. It, it could be perhaps the costly, costliest in modern times. Um, U.S. Customer losses is estimated around $4.6 billion. Lost wages, $1.1 billion. Company losses, $816 million. And are we actually going to see a strike here? You know, earlier I spoke to uh, an union expert, uh, and, and I, I asked him this exact question. So let's hear it from him, the president of the National Right to Work Foundation, Mark Mix. So now, Mark, I wanted to get your overall uh, general, you know, broad strokes of this situation. But let's answer the biggest question first that everyone's wondering. Are we going to see a UPS strike? I think so, Don. I think the probability of the strike is diminished a little bit based on some of the developments starting this morning at 7 a.m. and starting from comments from Sean O'Brien, the Teamster president, over the weekend. You know, let's put it in context. He said... We, 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 we've strategized, we've organized, now it's time to pulverize. So I think he's encouraging a strike. I, and I think because he's a new elected Teamster boss, just elected last year, he wants to prove his bona fides. He's a tough guy when he was a union president up in Massachusetts. And so I think they probably want to get a day or two and just to prove their bona fides. But I think the probability of the strike is diminishing. I think lawmakers have agreed to not intervene if there is a strike. Uh, how long do you think it would last? Well, the last strike lasted 15 days, um, and the 19, there was a 1994 strike that kind of broke down very quickly because it was an illegal strike. Uh, the 1997 strike over that five-year contract went for 15 days. You know, the impact, the impact on these workers, and let's look at it from a Teamster driver perspective. If you go out on strike, you get what's called strike pay, but you're going to make about $1,400 less per week for every week that you're out in your paycheck. The strike pay is not going to make up for the full salary. And so there's a real financial risk for these employees and possibly everything they gain at the bargaining table may be lost because they've been off the job for three weeks. I suspect there's a lot of Teamster drivers that are concerned about that. And we knew from the last strike, we represented literally hundreds of employees, helped hundreds of employees that wanted to cross the picket line and go to work because they needed to feed their families. We want to help those employees. We put out a special legal notice for UPS employees on our website at nrtw.org that walks them through that process if they feel like they want to go back to work. It seems like uh, the UPS workers will be impacted. What about UPS, the company, and what about regular people like you and me? Yeah, well, first of all, some people that study this very, very specifically said that a 10-day strike would cost UPS about $7 billion. Um, from an economic standpoint, from a customer standpoint, a customer-facing standpoint, UPS has about 24 to 25% of the entire market share of the partial business. So they're delivering anywhere from 18 million to 22 million packages a day. Now, obviously, there's FedEx, there's U the United Postal Service, there's uh, Amazon that provide these same kind of services. But really, UPS is the big player in this business. So 
I suspect that UPS has made provisions to try to try to deliver packages during this. But the the idea of having the manpower to process the entire you know logistics involved in the supply chain involved with UPS's operation are going to be hard to replace immediately. I think in the long term there's a risk for UPS and market share. I mean, FedEx has already indicated that customers can come to them. They put out some notices about a month ago saying, if you're interested in making sure you got continuity, let us know now so we can set up the structure that allows you to do that. Studies show that the United Postal Service has the capacity to do this. Whether they have the personnel, that's another question. But I think we're going to have to wait a day or two extra for packages to be delivered. It's not going to be, you know, order at 8 in the morning and get it by 5 in the afternoon, I suspect, because UPS had a big part of that business. Wow, seems like a lot of hurdles coming for the economy. But thank you so much for your insight today, Mark. Appreciate it, Don. Thanks for the opportunity. Coming up, the U.S. Virgin Islands has filed new accusations against J.P. Morgan Chase over the bank's association with disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. And Pfizer says its drugs may be in short supply. That's after a tornado destroyed a warehouse last week at its plant in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. We'll have the details soon when we return. Thanks for staying with us. The U.S. Virgin Islands has filed new accusations against J.P. Morgan Chase over the bank's association with disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. Court filings reveal multiple claims, such as more than $25 million of payments to Epstein's associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, and significant sums paid to his victims. They also include an email from a senior J.P. Morgan executive comparing a client's resident to Epstein's, making unsettling references to nymphets. J.P. Morgan hit back in response, blaming the U.S. Virgin Islands for facilitating Epstein's activities, including issuing visas for his victims. With a trial scheduled for October 23rd, U.S. Virgin Islands seeks over $190 million in damages and an acknowledgement that J.P. Morgan played a role in Epstein's sex trafficking. The Obama family received some bad news regarding their longtime family friend and chef. Former White House chef Tafari Campbell was found drowned yesterday near the Obama family home at Martha's Vineyard. Campbell was working as the Obama's personal chef. Former President Obama released a statement calling him a beloved part of the family and said, our hearts are broken that he's gone. Police were alerted to a problem by an eyewitness Sunday who saw Campbell go underwater with paddleboarding. He did not resurface. A dive team found his body yesterday. Police say he wasn't wearing a life preserver. The Obamas said Campbell left behind a wife and twin boys. Drug maker Pfizer says over 30 types of drugs may be in short supply. That's after a tornado destroyed a warehouse last week at its plant in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Pfizer revealed in a letter to hospitals that around 64 different formulations or dosages of these drugs might face continued or new supply issues. As a result, the company has imposed purchase limits. Among the affected drugs are injections of painkillers, fentanyl, and lidocaine, a local anesthetic. Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla says the tornado completely destroyed the warehouse at its North Carolina plant on July 19th. 
The warehouse is one of the world's largest sterile factories for injectable medicines, producing nearly 25% of Pfizer's injectable medicines. Desperate parents free a baby trapped in a hot car. The dramatic rescue was captured on video and has gone viral on social media. You're watching a father desperately break the windshield of his car in a Texas grocery store parking lot last Wednesday. He had accidentally locked his keys inside with his infant left in the car. With temperatures that would top 100 degrees later in the day, the parents were fighting against time. Shortly after the dad broke the glass, the mom climbed inside and handed him the baby. First responders in Harlingen arrived after the infant was freed and determined the little one wasn't harmed. The trial is underway for the Colorado police officer accused of leaving a handcuffed woman in a parked police car just before it was hit by a freight train. The accident occurred last September. The woman inside was seriously injured and she is suing over her treatment after being arrested. A video shows Officer Jordan Steinke searching the woman's truck when the truck when the train approached. The suspect was arrested for illegally pointing a gun at a driver during a road rage incident. Steinke's attorney said in a court that she was unaware the vehicle was parked on top of the tracks. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. After the break, Israel's parliament forbids its Supreme Court from blocking government decisions on the basis that they're extremely unreasonable. A former senior advisor of the U.S. ambassador to Israel breaks this down for us after the break. Thanks for staying with us. Israel's parliament passed a new law limiting the Supreme Court. Now protests against the law are rocking the nation. To learn more, I spoke with Aryeh Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead. Aryeh Lightstone, thank you for joining us. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. And tell us, what does this new Israeli law do exactly? So that's a great question. I think they're trying to figure that out themselves. Uh, when this government was formed, they had an entire suite of issues that they wanted to pass in terms of judicial reform, and that took place end of January, early February. There are about 29 straight weeks of protests, and ultimately the judicial reform has been pared down to what they're calling the reasonableness clause. And what the reasonableness clause is supposed to do, and I emphasize supposed to do, is supposed to try to put the Supreme Court in a box in terms of what they can and cannot litigate about. Uh, about 30 years ago, the Supreme Court Justice uh, Barack uh, expanded the uh, range and the reach of the Supreme Court to allow them to decide what is and what is not reasonable, allowing them essentially a veto over every legislation that gets passed, and not only legislation, but personnel decisions that the government makes. And what this government is trying to do is to say, look, as a Supreme Court, you can adjudicate laws, but you're not allowed to go ahead and decide what is and what is not reasonable. And the proof will be in the pudding, A, let's see if the Supreme Court decides this law is reasonable or not, and B, uh, when there is something that does look egregious, that happens time to time in democracies, whether the Supreme Court will or will not weigh in. 
And Aryeh, Israeli Justice Minister Yariv Levine said this new law is really the first step in a justice system overhaul. What's the next step? Well, I think we're going to have to see what happens. The way the parliamentary system works in Israel is they're now on a break for essentially all of August. I think there's going to be a test to see what is reasonable and what is not reasonable based upon the feelings of how this law came out. Uh, I think people will be very quick to show the images of the water cannon or of the blocking of the roads. Those are not the majority of the pictures that happen in Israel. You have hundreds of thousands of people protesting for and against the protest. The image that is not shown, but your viewers should look at it, is there's a central train station in Jerusalem, and all of the four protesters were taking the train to Tel Aviv, and all the against were coming to Jerusalem, and the escalators were going counter each other. The protesters were high-fiving each other, because the resilience of Israelis is definitely there, and it's one of the reasons why Americans, I think, feel very strongly uh, for Israelis, and Israelis feel very strongly for Americans. And so, yeah, you mentioned this pushback. Why, why the backlash in the first place for this law? I think you've got a very uh, challenging circumstance in Israel. You have uh, parties that feel disenfranchised. Uh, the ultra-religious don't serve in the army. Uh, those who feel that the Supreme Court serves them uh, in its traditional fashion believe that that's a check on the growing ultra-religious community in Israel, and they feel that if this gets weakened, then their block or check and balance against the growing religious party will be diminished. And there, there's an unease in terms of what that relationship looks like, and it's growing pains. You have growing both Israeli Arab and Israeli Jewish ultra-religious parties growing, and, and it's going to have to be something that's figured out by the society as it grows. Aryeh Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Some news from around the world. Another major change of power in China. Beijing has named a new governor to head the People's Bank of China. That's in a bid to revive the country's faltering economy. The appointee is Pan Gongsheng, the former deputy governor of China's central bank. Pan was widely seen to be in line for the post after he was appointed the Communist Party chief of the central bank. Meanwhile, Pan is the head of China's foreign exchange regulator. His new appointment will mark the first time in years that one person holds two top posts at the same time. He will also wield a huge policy influence over the world's second largest economy. But China's economic recovery has been stumbling after the pandemic amid a real estate slump and an exodus of foreign investment. Also in China, flames engulfed a giant Buddha statue after a fire ripped through a major temple in the northwest. The building was almost burnt to the ground. Footage showed the statue went up in flames in the early hours Monday. After the fire was extinguished, the Buddha statue appeared to remain partially intact, but several temple structures were destroyed. According to local media, the statue was built in 1998 as a replica of a centuries-old original, which was damaged during the Cultural Revolution. Authorities confirmed that there were no casualties from the fire. The cause of the incident is still under investigation. Just after this break, Golden Sands and pristine waters make Albania an up-and-coming travel hotspot. But a potential labor shortage could strain tourism. And in a remote North Macedonian village, a unique annual wedding festival celebrates a variety of traditions. 
Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back, everyone. Albania's inviting beaches and pristine waters are making the Balkan nation a travel hotspot. But as large numbers of young workers move abroad, the country could struggle to cater to the influx of tourists. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. An idyllic stretch of coastline complete with golden beaches and blue waters. Landscapes like this are allowing Albania to sell itself as a tourist destination. I heard something today before I came here that uh, Albania is the new Maldives of Europe. And uh, I think this fits, this fits. Because it's like uh, you can go to Maldives, but uh, much, much cheaper price. Albania has 280 miles of seafront, mountains, archaeological sites and distinctive local cuisine. Western tourists largely overlook the southern European country, but that seems to be changing. I think that what Albania is interesting is the fact that uh, internationally no one is speaking about Albania. There is uh, some pictures, there is some videos in the internet about Albania, but uh, no one is really interested in Albania. According to Albania's tourism ministry, the country welcomed 7.5 million visitors last year. That's a huge jump from 2019's 6 million tourists. They have amazing beaches. They have, uh, in terms of food, maybe one of the best foods in all Europe. Here we can uh, eat uh, fresh products with quality, things that you don't find in other countries. Uh, the fish is just amazing. But Albania may not have enough staff to meet the demand. Marcel Tusco works as a waiter in the capital, Tirana. He earns only around $450 a month. Now he's planning to move his family to Italy. The reason is very simple. Low salaries and unemployment are the basis for that. The payments are minimal while food prices are very high. Briefly, what you earn during the day is not enough for the evening. There are more expenses than earnings. Tourism accounts for 20% of Albania's labor force. The country will need workers if it wants to make its mark on the tourist map. Tying the knot comes with its own traditions and festivities no matter where you're from. In a remote North Macedonian village, a unique annual wedding festival celebrates a variety of customs. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Every year on St. Peter's Day, Galishnik stages a unique cultural event that attracts thousands of visitors. The remote North Macedonian village is about 75 miles southwest of the capital, Skopje, and an old adage rings true. There is a saying in Galichnik, wherever you are on St. Peter's Day, you should be at home. It's been so since old times, and that's why all the weddings have been held on St. Peter's Day. The picturesque village is best known for its traditional wedding festival. This year is its 60th anniversary. Each year, a couple is chosen to be married in the traditional way. There was a notice for participation in the Galichnik wedding, where couples sign up with general information about them, their origin from Galichnik, and other criteria that determines which couple is selected for the wedding. The festival features many unique customs and rituals. The groom is shaved in front of the fountain, symbolizing his introduction to manhood. 
The way of my life is based upon culture, tradition, ethnology, anthropology, traditional music and dance, and to be the bridegroom at the Galichnik wedding, a wish come true. The bride arrives at the church on horseback, accompanied by a lively procession of family and friends, and she's dressed in more than 40 different pieces of embroidered ornate clothing. For many, it's a part of their identity. As we always um, talk about our Macedonian culture, our traditions, our folklore, and always it was a dream for my wife to come and see the Galichnitska Svadba so that she can actually um, just to visualize how you know the tradition continues. The village is most crowded during these two busy days in mid-July, but as summer draws to an end, there will be as few as three people left in the small mountain town until next wedding season. When we come back, researchers discover that endangered Maasai giraffes are actually two separate subspecies. They say the animals haven't interbred in more than 250,000 years. We'll have that and more just after the break. Welcome back. President Biden's dog, Commander, is getting some obedience training. That's because the German Shepherd is a biter. According to a Secret Service email, Commander has been involved in several biting incidents at the White House and in Delaware. The White House said the Bidens were working through new training for their pet. Commander arrived at the White House in 2021. The emails were obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests by the conservative group Judicial Watch. The messages show Commander was involved in 10 incidents, including one that required an officer to go to the hospital. Another of Biden's German Shepherds, Major, moved out of the White House after also being involved in biting incidents. You've heard of canine officers that sniff drugs or hold suspects. The newest police dog in Indianapolis does none of these. Meet Officer Gus. This Australian mini Labradoodle only has one job, to make officers feel better. He's the Indianapolis Police Department's official therapy dog. Gus knows more than 30 commands and has even been trained not to be bothered by gunfire or sirens. His primary handler went to school to become certified in handling therapy dogs. Studies show that therapy dogs can have imp positive impacts on wellness following a traumatic event. Researchers at Penn State University have found that endangered Maasai giraffes are more at risk than previously thought. In fact, the subspecies is now two separate groups which haven't interbred in more than 250,000 years. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Penn State researchers say the Great Rift Valley running through Kenya and Tanzania has divided Maasai giraffes into two groups. The giraffes haven't interbred for hundreds of thousands of years, stopping the exchange of genetics. And what we found is that genetically, <clears throat> they're not as closely related to each other as what we thought. And it's concerning because they're really now separate populations. The steep cliffs of the Gregory Rift divide the remaining Maasai giraffes into two distinct populations, Western and Eastern. Interbreeding enhances genetic diversity and shields small populations from disease. As the population gets really, really, really small, then that increases the probability that individuals that are very closely related to each other will breeding with each other. And that can lead to what's called inbreeding depression. The Maasai giraffe's population has declined over the last three decades from 70,000 to 35,000. 
the endangered species faces threats such as poachers and habitat loss. I do know that our regulations, you know, policy, giraffe was not classified as endangered species. So if today you arrest someone with a giraffe's product, you know, there is no regulation at the moment. Penn State University researchers published their study in the Ecology and Evolution Journal on June 12th. Here's your daily dose of cuteness. A tiny deer named Paolo was born at Chester Zoo in England, and he was the same size as a guinea pig. The rare southern poodoo fawn weighed only two pounds at birth and stood a little more than six inches tall. He's only expected to grow another foot in total. Poodoo is the world's smallest species of deer. Paolo is part of a conservation breeding program to protect the near-threatened species. A three-year-old beaver is settling into her new home in the Oregon Zoo. She's the newest resident in the Cascade Stream and Pond Habitat. Maple was welcomed to her new home by another beaver, 12-year-old Filbert. He's affectionately known around the zoo as the branch manager. According to zoo staff, the two beavers hit it off and were swimming and playing together immediately. Filbert was born at the zoo in 2011. His parents died in 2022. The zoo says it has been giving him plenty of special attention. A first-of-its-kind discovery. A white dwarf star with two completely different faces. White dwarfs are burnt remains of dead stars, but typically white dwarfs don't have one side of the star devoted to one element and the other dominated by another. The newly discovered white dwarf, nicknamed Janus for the Roman god of transition, has two sides, one made of hydrogen, and the other made of helium. A study detailing the findings was published last week in the journal Nature. Researchers aren't quite sure why the star has two completely different sides. White dwarves form when stars the size of our sun swell into red giants, then collapse into a white-hot core. It's possible that something unusual happened during the process for Janus. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers.